Merkel Media. I guess it's time to go back in time. Are you telling me you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? Time is but a stubborn illusion. I have a lot of memories of the past. People are time traveling within themselves. Time travel is possible. Nobody's quite sure when ghost stories first became associated with Christmas time. Some people actually believe that the tradition is older than Christmas itself. Before Christmas was a holiday, the dramatic people of Europe celebrated a festival called Yule, which came at the end of the year. During the longest, darkest nights of the year, it was thought that the barrier between our world and the afterlife became thinner, and ghosts were more likely to appear on Earth. This led to all kinds of stories about ghosts being told. Eventually, many Yule traditions were incorporated into Christmas, including ghost stories. In 1863, Charles Dickens published his famous novel, A Christmas Carol. The book was a huge hit and helped reignite people's love for the Christmas season. It also helped to associate the season with ghosts, like those that visited mean old Scrooge to help him mend his ways. After that, ghost stories became a beloved part of Christmas in England. Families would gather around the fire and read stories to scare and thrill one another. Some people read stories written by popular authors of the day, while others came up with their own. Yet others told stories that had been passed down in their families for generations. Stories that might have come from reality. Today, you're going to hear some scary stories. Scary stories told by myself, my wife, and my father. Scary stories that are personal experiences and stories that stem from the Bible. For toasting and caroling out in the snow There'll be scary ghost stories 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 Scary If you do not like sinning against Christmas music I highly suggest you change the dial
on the housetop, reindeer paws. Out jumps good old Santa Claus. Down through the chimney with lots of toys. All for the little one's Christmas joys. Ho, 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 who wouldn't go? Ho, 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 who wouldn't go? Stockin' little now, old dear Santa, fill it well. Give her a dolly that laughs and cries. One that can open and shut its eyes. Ho ho ho, who wouldn't go? Ho ho ho, who wouldn't go? Up on the up on the up on
Ho, ho, ho. Okay, today I have a special guest coming on the show. I am really excited about talking to this gentleman. Uh, it is somebody who knows me very well, and I know him very well. It's not Jack, my younger brother, but rather my dad. Dad, how are you? I'm all right. How are you doing, Tony? I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. That's awesome. So we're recording this after we just got done eating Thanksgiving dinner, and uh, I told you I wanted you to help me with some uh, vocal projects, and I do, and uh, we're kind of just warming it up here with the mics, and we figured, why not have Dad tell his story of when he was a kid and he saw some UFOs? Now, I got to tell you, Dad, this is one of the situations where the story you shared with me when I was a kid growing up this story that you're about to share with people really spawned my interest in this mysterious stuff. Because here I am as a kid, somebody who I love and I trust, it's my father, is telling me he saw UFOs. And this is like, I'm talking like this is legit stuff. Like this wasn't just, uh, I saw a light somewhere far in the distance and I think it kind of acted funny. This was multiple things. And I don't want to ruin the story, so I'm going to let you share it. You were a kid and you were playing with your brothers and sisters Draw the picture for us. What right. exactly happened? All right. Well, we, my aunt lived way out in the country in a town called Neutropoli. She lived down in this little valley. And we were outside playing. It was dark. And uh, it was it was late evening or, or, or early night. It was, you know, 8, 39 o'clock-ish. So, however you figure that as far as time goes. And uh, across the street was a hill. And over top of that hill came two lights. And there was no noise, and it was quiet. And these lights just kind of hovered above that hill and came towards us from the hill, down, like they were coming down the hill. And uh, one of us had run inside to tell our parents to come out. And there was probably 10, 12 people standing there looking at this with our parents, my brother and my three sisters, my cousins, and there was four or five of them. And all of our parents were all looking at this. And one light was blue, and one light was white. And they were silent. There was absolutely no noise. And it just hovered there. And we just stood there looking at this thing in amazement at, at, at these two lights. You couldn't really see an outline of a craft. You couldn't really see anything. I remember I'm six years old, somewhere around there, six, yeah. seven. And... Uh, that was about the extent of the story, but it has stuck in my head since then, and I'm yeah. 51 now. I'll tell you, I when I I remember you telling me the story, and what really stood out to me was as a kid was the fact that you were telling me that not only did you see this, but that you were with your siblings, mm -hmm. and you told me this when I was real young, and then as I got older, I remember I was in high school. And every once in a while, you would tell me this story. Right. And we're at Aunt Bonnie's house, and all it's nighttime. All his kids are outside playing in the dark. Parents are out in the driveway just talking, hanging out. And I remember standing in Aunt Bonnie's driveway, and I remember you bringing it up to Uncle Pally. Uncle Pally, his real name is Cameron, but we call him Uncle Pally. Long story. Right. But he's our pal. And, uh, <laughs> and I stopped playing. And I'm in high school, so we're, I don't know what we were doing. Probably hiding to see. I don't know. But uh, I stopped. And I just kind of like hovered in the distance. I didn't want to interject and stuff, but I'm just listening because I'm like, where is this right. going, you know? And I remember you asking Uncle Pally, 
hey, do you remember when we were kids? And and I remember, and you kind of regurgitating it a little bit. Right. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I remember that. And I, and I don't think the conversation went much further than that, but no. it was just like, yep, I remember that. It didn't. And the thing is, I wanted to verify it for myself yeah, because I had this memory and I was six or seven and he's six years older than me. So that puts him in the 12, 13 year range. Mm-hmm. And you figure somebody, a kid that age in junior high is, you know, going to remember more details and have more of that memory and remember more of it than a five-year-old or a six-year-old or a seven-year-old. Yeah. And so that's why I wanted to verify with him. Like, you know, was, was this just something that was in my own head or did we all really see this? Yeah. And he verified, no, it, it you know, we saw it. It happened. It was, it's a true story. And he, we didn't discuss it any further than that. And the funny thing is, is over the years, none of us ever really discussed it with each other. Why? We never really talked about it. It happened. And we never, and, and to be honest with you, I think that's the thing that sparked my Bigfoot interest and all of the paranormal interest that I've had over the years. Yeah. I have been a, you know, a, a minor horror movie buff, just didn't, you know, yeah. enjoy the horror movie and enjoy the paranormal, the Bigfoot stuff. And I think that's what has sparked that over the years. And it just, but we never discussed it as a family. We never sat down and talked about it, not with our parents. Not, not amongst ourselves. And it's like you grow up and you're looking at it like, well, did that really happen? You know, especially at, you know, six or seven, you're like, did that really happen? So that's why I really felt compelled to talk yeah. to my brother and say, hey, did this happen? You know, do, am I just remembering, is this just a, you know, a childhood goof? Yeah. Or is this, is this real? And he was like, no, he said it happened. I remember it. And that was it. That was wow. the end of the conversation. See, I, and so... I didn't know, and I might have said this on the show before, but I didn't know you were into these kind of things mm-hmm. when I started getting into it. And it's so funny because I, I remember when I first started looking, because Bigfoot was like the thing that really kind of hooked me. Right. And now Bigfoot's the most non-mysterious thing to me of all everything. Right. And it's because, one, I think it's the most tangible. Like, it, it's something that, you know, people, thousands of people are seeing walking through the woods uh, it's by chance you see it most of the time, and but to me it's just a factual thing. There's not a mystery anymore to it. Like I've talked to so many people, but I remember when I first started talking about this stuff. Well, when I first started looking into it, I was quiet about it. Mm-hmm. Like the, like Lindsay didn't even know at first, and I told Lindsay, and she's like, "Okay, whatever, I don't care." And uh, we would watch some of these shows, and she was into it, you know, just entertainment purposes. And I remember when I first started talking about it to you guys. I remember I was at your house and you're like, oh yeah, you should definitely you know listen to Coast to Coast. I listen to Coast to Coast all the time. I'm like, wait, you listen to Coast to Coast? <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, yeah, yeah. And then you're like, and, and then I remember you saying to me when I started the podcast, I was at your house and you said, you know, you know who you should have on the show? I'm like, who? And you said, Ellie Marzulli. And yeah. I was like, how do you know who Ellie Marzulli is? You know, and then you're like, oh, I've heard him on Coast to Coast and this, that, and the other. And so I went home that night and I emailed Ellie Marzulli mm-hmm. and he agreed to come on the show. And that's episode 18. But that all spawned because you suggested it. Like, I probably <laughs> never would have even thought at that point in the show to even uh, think about contacting LA because I was like, I'm too new, this, that, and the other. And he was just like, yeah. And I was like, uh, okay, okay. It's like when you catch something you're trying to chase your whole life and all of a sudden you catch it, like, what do I do with it? Right. Yeah. You know? Exactly. Um, exactly. But, uh, you know, I, 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 your fascination with these things and you telling me that story at a young age really, I think, not 
like up front mentally, but in the background, subliminally in my mind, it like took handcuffs off mm-hmm. where it was like, my dad saw UFOs. So it's okay to look into this and just right. be fascinated by it because somebody that you know, you love and trust is telling you, I've seen this, you know? Right. And so that story always captivated me. And I, I, I've, I went through my entire life remembering it. Did you guys ever like, did the parents ever see this? Did they ever come out at all? Did you guys ever go inside and say, hey, we just saw something crazy in the sky or anything like that? Yeah, well, the crazy thing is we actually ran in and got our parents and brought them out. And they saw it. They, they stood did? there. Yeah, they stood there with us. Wow. I mean, it, you know, there's I mean, a range of kids from, uh, let's say, 15 down to myself and my cousin. We were the youngest ones and we're about, you know, six or seven. And then there was our parents. Wow, you know, and, and I mean, like I said, there there had to be, you know, almost fifteen people standing there. I mean, we had you know two families of you know seven, at least seven people per family, you know, including parents, and we're all wow. looking at this, and that's why it was it was so odd. Over the years, after looking at it and looking back, that nobody ever talked about it after that. It was just a, a silent memory that I, we all shared, an event that we all shared. And yet nobody talked about it. And I, I I remember being one of them that ran in to get Aunt Sharon, Uncle Roland, and my mom and dad. And they came out and they looked. And we all stood there looking at these lights, silent lights that are up in the sky, uh, uh, white and blue lights, just hovering over the hill. And it was just, it was amazing. Did they just, did they disappear? What, what happened? Like, how'd this whole event end? Honestly, I I don't even it, it, that's part of the thing that you just you don't remember you know yeah. it's like one of those it, it it just I don't know if we just walked away or if they just you know if they left if they just kind of disappeared back over the hill on the other side where we couldn't see them I think that's what happened was they just went down the other side and this was Nutripoli yep which wow. is, you know from here well from where you are. Let's not say where I'm at. Yeah. It's a while. <laughs> yeah. I try to, from the deep underground bunker of there somewhere in Pennsylvania, we yeah. broadcast. <laughs> the only somewhere pe- outside Bigfoot's lair. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the only people who know where I live are people who I've run into locally. Yeah. <laughs> so we just, and everybody I run into, I'm like, hey, let's just, you know, don't, don't yeah. announce on social media where I live. We'll just call it rural <laughs> Eastern Pennsylvania. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Happy holidays. Happy holidays. May the calendar keep ringing. Happy holidays to you.
like a squeaky violin. Take your cares down the stairs. Up the
Ho, ho, ho. You know, so I'm hanging out and I'm chilling, I'm vibing with God. Like I'm sitting here and just trying to listen to the spirit speak to me. And, you know, everything's going as normal. And then I started feeling like this pressure on the back of my shoulder, my right shoulder. It wasn't like a a hand squeezing my shoulder, but it definitely felt very physical. And I'm alone. There's nobody here. Like, I'm by myself. And I start feeling this. And as soon as I acknowledge it and realize this is feeling physical, but it's weird, and I start to turn my head to look and see what is grabbing my shoulder, I'm gone. And when I say I'm gone, I'm literally gone. Out. That's it. Like, one moment, I'm chilling and vibing. I go to turn my head and I'm gone and I'm standing in the middle of a valley of dry bones. No jokes. It wasn't like I was just flying through the air or something. I just, one minute I'm chilling and vibing and the next minute I'm standing in a valley of dry bones. And I'm talking about thousands of bones. And I was like, "Um, what just happened? (laughs) I mean, it was so confusing. And just as I started getting scared and terrified because I had no idea what was going on, I'm just standing in the middle of a valley filled with dry bones, human bones. And I'm like, am I going to be the next deposit here? And that's when I started feeling God speak to me. And he asked me, son of man, can these bones live? And I said, Sovereign Lord, you only know. Like, I mean, if you want them to live, they're going to live. I'm not sure where this is going, but I am here as your humble servant. And you put me here. So I'm assuming you have a reason. And then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you, and make flesh come upon you, and cover you with skin. I will breathe in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. (laughs) So, I prophesied what I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise. It was like this rattling sound. And you could hear this scraping sound. And it was like things were being dragged through the valley. It it, it was quiet at first, very subtle. And then as time went on, it got louder and louder and more rapid and more rapid. And then I see it. It was amazing. These bones literally were coming together before my eyes, bone by bone, place by place. It was like I was witnessing God creating Adam. It was very intense. I looked and the tendons and the flesh appeared on them. You would see the bones come together and then 
almost seemingly out of nowhere, and typically it was on the feet. The skin and tendons started appearing and just growing up the bones and until it was a full body. It was a human body standing before me, and this happened so rapidly and so quick. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I felt like I was dreaming or maybe even having a nightmare, but this was very real. But then I noticed something. There was no breath in them. And as soon as I noticed that, as soon as I consciously, mentally made a mental note aware that there was no breath in these things, God said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this, what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. (laughs) Well, I mean, the first time I prophesied something, it happened. So why not? So I prophesied as he commanded me and the breath entered them right away without hesitation they came to life standing right there on their feet a vast army of what I can only say were zombies Ezekiel chapter 37 verses 1 through 10 kind of Christmas. Christmas. 
That's fascinating. Yeah. That's absolutely fascinating. So, I mean, that's that spawned something off in your brain and then in turn spawned something off in my brain. Right. Which, you know, I, I always talk about on the show about the people who um, are responsible or I shouldn't say responsible, uh, but lended a hand in some way of this show coming together. Right. Uh, one person I mention ob- obviously all the time is Wes Germer. I mean, mm-hmm. he's the one who called me randomly, never knew him. Just one night, I'm in my truck getting ready to get out to go home, and I get a phone call from him. We talk for 45 minutes, and at, at some point in that conversation, he's like, you know, I think you should start a podcast. I think you'd be good at it. And I'm like, you know, and that's that That was huge, right? right? Yeah. Uh, another huge. one is uh, George Bruno, and we were talking, you and I were talking about him earlier today. Uh, he has a YouTube channel, and he does, uh, he, he, when I found him, he was doing a lot of beard stuff. He was doing beard reviews, showing men how to take care of their beards, and at that time, I was growing that giant beard, and I was trying to learn. Right. And I, I saw this guy who was at that time in his mid fifties starting a YouTube channel. And I was like, wow, this guy doesn't care how old he is. He's not willing to say I'm too old to do anything. And, uh, and then one day he was driving in his car and he would take his phone. He does all his product. Everything he does to this day is just through his phone. Everything. Wow. Nothing with a computer. And he has 140,000 subscribers on YouTube. That's awesome. And, and one day he had his, his phone stuck to the mirror of his car and he was doing a video just talking and driving. And I see signs, street signs saying, uh, uh, Concha Hawken. And I'm like, wait a second, he's in the Philly area? <laughs> and so that's when I started becoming an internet sleuth with him. And I, I, I found out uh, where he works and I made an appointment one day and I went in and I got my beard sculpted by him. And I introduced myself and I told him, I said, you know, I want to let you know you're you doing this YouTube channel because he would do other things too. Like he he really talks to he, I mean he talks to everybody, but it seems like his audience is really a lot of younger men. 
uh, you know, 20s, 30s, even 40s, just showing you how to be a man, like a, like a classy guy. And, um, and I told him, I said, you really inspired me to start my YouTube channel. And because uh, I, th- I had started uh, Pennsylvania Sasquatch Research YouTube channel, which doesn't even exist anymore. I, I've deleted it. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was a huge reason why I started the YouTube channel. I was like, I had this Facebook group. and I was like, I think I could do videos and talk just like this guy George is. And so I started a YouTube channel, which led to Wes finding me and calling me. But before George, you kind of unhooked the, or uncuffed me mentally as a young child sharing with me this experience that you had. Right. And it's just like, it's these little events in life. I remember going into the library, and you know, when I was a kid, to this day, I don't like reading. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm in elementary school, and you know, everybody has to go to the library and rent a book. I'm like, or I say rent a book. It's <laughs> just check one out. Yeah, check one out. But um, I, I remember I would always just go and get this, like, monster book it had bigfoot Loch Ness monster and i always get that and it wasn't because i like reading it i like looking at the pictures and wondering what these things could be if they're real and that's why i was in elementary school and me and my friends like Derek carlson uh cody bauer we would all like talk about i mean especially me and Derek, we would specifically talk about how we were going to go to uh Loch Ness one day and we were going to find the Loch Ness monster and we're going to prove that the world it exists right. and uh, I, Derek, if you ever hear this i'm still waiting on that we, we gotta go do that buddy <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's the little things in life and you know me bringing these books home and stuff i don't even know if it, how you ever came to telling me that story to the first time uh, since then i've i think i've always been the initiator in the conversation tell me that story again dad right. you know but uh and i mean i've been doing this show for three years and i'm finally getting you on to talk yeah. about it in and, a sneaky way yeah <laughs> i told <laughs> i told you i said i needed your help recording stuff anyway yeah. i do but i I know we need to warm up our voices That's and get used right. to behind the microphone and do some uh, volume checks and stuff. I figured, why not have you tell your story while we do Perfect it? Perfect timing. Yeah, I mean... Have un- Thanksgiving dinner. Right. <laughs> un- unfortunately, we have everybody downstairs and they're yelling, so people are probably going to hear some of that in the audio, but... <laughs> probably. Sorry, everybody. It is what it is. Uh, but, yeah, Dad, I'm telling you, man, like that really stuck with me and it really kind of spawned what we have today in in its own way right and uh even and i've talked about this on the show uh the the music side of things for me mm-hmm. like I, I i'm not um i don't know how to read music i can't sing uh I, I i'm not a musician but seeing you as a kid in 95 i know specifically that date sticks out in my head you would travel to nashville and you would record right. music and i've said that on the show before um you you still are a very good singer and you would do recordings in Nashville and I would see that and it kind of gave me this passion for music mm-hmm. even though I didn't know lick about it but that passion for music carried over into my first year of college and I just so happened to be on a floor with a bunch of guys who were rappers and I liked rap music <laughs> and my roommate had this program called Fruity Loops and I'm like what is Fruity Loops and he shows me and you can make beats on it and i was like wow so at that in those days nowadays it's all locked down you can't share these kind of things but those days he just burned the program to a disc put it on my computer and i had fruity loops <laughs> and i failed every class that year <laughs> but you were good to go yeah why yeah and so i started making beats and we we would record music uh the following year i think it was i really got into the recording side of things and it gave me that taste of audio production which is what I wanted to do out of high school, if you remember. Yeah. I mean, I was accepted into Full Sail University. Yeah. And I I don't understand what it was 
that didn't make me go. Mm-hmm. But something inside knew I'm 17 years old and I would have my own apartment in Orlando, Florida. Right. Something about it, I just was like, that's not a good idea. <laughs> so I was like, I'll become a pastor. How hard is that? <laughs> Six years later. <laughs> right? <laughs> no degree, lots of debt, you know? <laughs> so, but I mean, I, I, the whole, I say all this because there are things throughout our entire lives that lead to the next step and next next segment of our lives, yeah. you know, and what it, a negative experience can lead to an even bigger negative experience later in life if we let it affect us. But the yes. same thing, positive things in life that you know, little positive things here and there build over time and steer you in certain directions that you don't even realize until you get to a certain location, like I am now at the show, where I'm really pursuing this show hard. It, this is this show is not a a game for me. This is for real. I'm dead yeah. serious about it. And these little things throughout my life led me to that, you know? And so when it comes to the, the, the paranormal side of things, you put that seed in me. And then when it comes to the audio side of things, musically, I got a lot of that from you. You know, I, I, I found a passion in music, even though we didn't listen to the same kind of music. You're, you're not what they call a hip hop head. So, <laughs> you got that right. But, but the gospel music, and I've always had this well-rounded taste for music because of being raised with you. And then, you know, on church on Sundays, I'd be working in the sound room and mm-hmm. I got familiar with the soundboard and I had no idea what I was doing with it. Like, I'm like, I think this button mutes the microphone, so we're not going to touch this one. Dad's giving me the thumbs up so i think that means volume uh in the monitors and not out into the entire church i had no idea what i was doing but i knew every sunday that i was doing it i loved it you know and this is what i wanted to do and then i i go through life i go to the college and i don't graduate I go through how many jobs in my 20s trying to figure out what I want to do. Parking enforcement, uh, mechanics, uh, driving trucks for different companies. Like, I've done so much stuff. Right. And it's funny how everything just kind of came back and came together with this. And, you know, here I am. I'm still driving truck, but I'm doing something that I'm truly passionate about. And I think that I'm halfway decent at. Right. And, uh, and a lot of it, you know comes from your influence and so on the show i'd like to say thank you daddy dad (laughs) because uh it it really is um it it really is little things in life that build up and that's why with my son like i'm so ultra focused on the steps along the way with raising him because you never know what little thing could turn his mind in a certain direction exactly you know and that's good and bad stuff yeah and so yeah, I just think it's really cool that you had that experience. And then me and mom, we were living in Kutztown mm-hmm. and we had saw, I didn't even think it was a, as an adult, I was like, ah, oh, that wasn't a UFO. And it wasn't until I'm t- I'm retelling the story at mom and dad's or your, your yeah, <laughs> mom's dad. house and your house, and dad's <laughs> house. And uh, I'm like, yeah, but that, you know, I, I don't, I, cause at that time I was like, I don't think I ever saw a UFO because it was before my UFO experience outside of Willowgrove. Right. And, uh, then mom's like, no, that was a UFO. I'm like, what, what? <laughs> I'm like, that was a helicopter. And she's like, nope, that was not. A <laughs> and it's just funny. Cause like I was a kid and right. I didn't know. And, and we again, didn't talk about it. Right. And, but real quick, that story for the audience listening. I mean, we're outside. And I think I was taking the dog out or something. And 
uh, I see these lights in the sky, and if I remember correctly, it was uh, four lights, but they moved in in conjunction with each other. And if you think of like the four points on a helicopter, that's kind of like what it looked like. Like one was further back where the spinny thing is, and then there's one on the front, one on the top, one on the bottom. And right. And so, I mean, I don't know. I'm not a aviation guy. There you go. That's okay. So, uh, and it's flying over the cornfield across the street from where we lived. And it shoots a beam of light out of it mm-hmm. on an angle into the woods. And I was like, oh, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> we're getting invaded. Mom. <laughs> and my mom comes out and she's, I remember she was fascinated by it right. and it was out in the distance. And then it started coming in towards us. Mm-hmm. And I remember in the moment I was excited but I couldn't have been fearful right. because what happened is this thing comes in right almost over us, but it wasn't quite over us. And then it shot up to the left, like it was going up the road. Mm-hmm. And I remember running up the road towards it. I was like, wow, you know, that was a crazy trailer park kid. I was like, yeah, this is the most exciting thing I've seen. I live between two cornfields. This is great. <laughs> you know. And so I, I remember seeing that and, and mom confirming years later that, yeah, that she's like, I, there's no, but there was no sound. Like you said, there was right. no sound whatsoever. And uh, it, it was just one of those things I probably never forget. And now as an adult with my mom's confirmation, I'm like, okay, I guess it was an unidentified flying object. Right. Um, but, you know, I know you listen to this show. I know you listen to Sasquatch Chronicles mm-hmm. as well. Um, you know, with these people's experience, especially on my show, uh, you get a lot of, you get, you know, the smorgasbord of experiences. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, there's a lot of people that talk about having a UFO experience mm-hmm. uh, with other people, but they never talk about it. It just right. was never talked about. And there are people that, they like they have no idea why they they I don't know we just never talked about it. Right. Some people feel like they were abducted and there's just a memory that you know came back over time and they just that's why they never talked about it. But it sounds to me like there was no abduction kind of thing in your scenario because you actually ran in the house to get to the parents. They came out. Yep. It was like a very active sighting. It wasn't just like we saw these lights and then I looked around and it was morning. You know <laughs> so exactly yeah.
Ho, ho, ho. Can you catch Leviathan with a hook or put a noose around its jaw? Can you tie it with a rope through the nose or pierce its jaw with a spike? Will it beg you for mercy or implore you for pity? Will it agree to work for you, to be your slave for life? Can you make it a pet, like a bird, or give it to your little girls to play with? Will merchants buy it to sell it in their shops? Will its hide be hurt by spears or its head by harpoons? If you lay your hand on it, you will certainly remember the battle that follows. You won't try that again. No, it is useless to try to capture it. The hunter who attempts it will be knocked down. And since no one dares to disturb it, who can stand up to me? Who has given me anything that I need to pay back? Everything under heaven is mine. I want to emphasize Leviathan's limbs and its enormous strength and graceful form. Who can strip off its hide and who can penetrate its double layer of armor? Who can pry open its jaws, for its teeth are terrible. The scales on its back are like rows of shields, tightly sealed together. They are so close together that no air can get between them. Each scale sticks tight to the next. They interlock and cannot be penetrated. When it sneezes, it flashes light. Its eyes are like the red of dawn. Lightning leaps from its mouth. Flames of fire flash out. Smoke streams from its nostrils like stream from a pot heated over burning bushes. Its breath would kindle coals, for flames shoot from its mouth. The tremendous strength in Leviathan's neck strikes terror wherever it goes. Its flesh is hard and firm and cannot be penetrated. Its heart is hard as a rock, hard as a millstone. When it rises, the mighty are afraid, gripped with terror. No sword can stop it, no spear, dart, or javelin. Iron is nothing but straw to that creature, and bronze is like rotten wood. Arrows cannot make it flee. Stones from a sling are like bits of grass. Clubs are like blades of grass, and it laughs at the swish of javelins. Its belly is covered with scales as sharp as glass. It plows up the ground as it drags through the mud. Leviathan makes the water boil with its commotion. It stirs the depths like a pot of ointment. The water glistens in its wake, making the sea look white. Nothing on earth is its equal, no other creature so fearless. Of all the creatures, it is the proudest. It is the king of the beasts. Job 41 Top Secret, United States of America Navy, July 11, 1980 The contents of this report are for A-level security status only. No portion of this document may be reproduced for any reason. Lower-level security status personnel are not to be made aware of this document, nor is the public. This document may not be transferred into digital format and cannot be transmitted by electronic means. Failure to comply will be seen as an act of treason, punishable by death without standing trial in any form. Submarine codename, Scorpion. Statement, Johnny Davidson, Ensign. 
Captain Ritter ordered us to turn north to the Arctic Ocean near Greenland to run cold water tests. We were to spend seven days under the ice before returning to warmer waters in the Atlantic. The purpose of these tests was not revealed to the crew before or after the voyage. At approximately 0400 hours 07 7 1980, the alarm sounded that a large, unknown object was in the vicinity of the Scorpion. On radar, it appeared larger than any submarine currently in existence anywhere in the world. Captain Ritter ordered us to run silently as we observed the anomaly. It became clear that the anomaly was approaching us. At approximately 0600 hours, we made physical contact. Radar reported that the anomaly had enveloped the scorpion. Gauges indicated that we were descending deeper under the water. We reached and passed crush depth minutes after we lost control of the submarine, but the submarine showed no effects common with increased pressure on the hull. It appeared in the same condition as the day we departed from port. Radar reported strange objects in the water, nothing that appeared dangerous to us. Ritter canceled the silence. He saw no importance in it. Gauges indicated then that we were ascending to surface level. Once we reached periscope depth, Captain Ritter used the scope to look around. He did not say what he saw, but it was clear that we had surfaced. With the captain's permission, several crew members exited the submarine to explore the area. I did not leave the submarine during this time. Only two of the 12-man exploring team returned. They would not speak of their experiences. Soon after, we were pulled back under the water in the reverse of what had happened. When we were finally released, we were alone in our previous position in the Arctic with no trace of the anomaly. Three days had passed. We returned to port immediately. Statement, Brian Cox, Petty Officer. We went into the Arctic Ocean and under the ice on 07-06-1980 without any issue. The following day, at approximately 0500 hours, radar saw an unidentified underwater object in the vicinity of the ghost. The UUO made contact with the Scorpion at approximately 0600 hours and dragged the submarine deep. Captain Ritter ordered silent running, but the events prevented the men from carrying out that order. Ritter canceled the order before the submarine reached crush depth. When we began ascending, engineering reported that they weren't able to power the propellers. Once we reached periscope depth, Captain Ritter looked around. He didn't say exactly what he saw, though he did say, what is this place? With permission from the captain, a party, including myself, was able to explore the area around the submarine. The unknown place had breathable air, though it was thin and sometimes hard to breathe. Samuels, who had asthma, couldn't do much. It was a humid place, reminiscent of the Gulf of Mexico. It was a place unlike anything I have ever seen. There was foliage I did not recognize. The very landscape appeared alien to me. The sky was odd. It did not look like the same space seen from the surface of Earth. I stayed with Samuels when his asthma slowed him down. I spent my time looking at the surrounding foliage as Samuels hid himself in a small cave. The plants were unlike anything I'd ever seen before, though I admit my experiences in the town of Moros didn't make me very worldly. Still, I read National Geographic whenever I could, and none of the green that surrounded our small camp was ever in those pages. What looked almost like a rose bush had the head of a Venus flytrap, which watched us like a snake hunting its prey before finally striking 
and the vines that crawled up the rock wall behind me around Samuels shook as if nervous. It all seemed strange to me. After what seemed like an eternity, I saw Fielding running towards me. He was coming down a hill, and from my position I could see him stumble as he ran, but he always kept his feet under him. I do not know what the others experienced. He was in a panic, and he ushered me to flee. My regret, Samuels was still alive when I left him, though those vines had moved closer to his hiding hole, as though they intended to strangle him. After we returned, the scorpion, the submarine was dragged back under the water. It was much more violent than our original trip, and when we sunk deep, I could feel the pressure building as if we'd really gone below crushed depth. Once released, we were able to return to port. Three days had passed, though I can't fathom where they had gone. Statement, Corey Fielding, Petty Officer. Captain Ritter ordered us under the Arctic ice to run drills, though he wasn't specific. He armed the torpedoes, which I thought were dummies, though he seemed confident that they were alive. We made wide turns around the same area, as if circling something we couldn't see. Ritter kept a keen eye on us, never retiring to his cabin, as would be expected of him. At approximately 0300 hours on 0707-1980, the Scorpion entered the vicinity of an unknown object. I say that we entered the vicinity because it remained stationary throughout the observation. The scorpion moved into the object's path. Ritter directed us towards it. I feared an imminent collision, but nobody else on the crew appeared to share my nerves. Whatever it was, it dragged the submarine deeper until we passed crush depth. Despite several attempts, we were unable to get free of the object, like it wrapped itself around us in a tight hold. Only later did I learn the truth. When we rose, it was not in the same place we had been. Captain Ritter used the periscope once we were at the appropriate depth, mumbling under his breath. I don't wish to know what he saw or what looked back at him through the scope. With the captain's permission, a small group was formed to explore the unknown area around the scorpion. The first fact, we could breathe, although the air was thinner, like we were at a high altitude. It was also hot, though I would not say humid. I was joined by Cox, Samuels, Nero, Connor, Warden, Restbrook, Saluki, Mahoney, Ryder, Yaks, and Bishop. Cox and Samuels stopped halfway through our trip. Samuels complained of asthma, though I've never seen him show any sign of asthma before. I think he feared climbing the hill before us. It was like walking through a wild forest with only a small path to follow. The submarine had risen in what looked like a pond, though oddly the water was frozen into ice. We'd brought the Arctic with us, or so it seemed. I saw several large tentacles wrapped around the hull, holding it in place. It was like an octopus holding a fish right before consuming it. At the time, I couldn't see anything else of the object holding the submarine. The ten of us followed the path until we came to a ruined city, like those built by the Mayans. It looked long abandoned. Some humanoid skeletons were visible. I don't want to say human because they weren't. Over seven feet tall with thick brows and long limbs. They were some twisted artist's imagination of what we were beneath skin and muscle. We headed toward a high pyramid that seemed to be the center of the city. Like the rest of the city, it looked abandoned with those strange vines like those where Cox and Samuels had stopped growing up to it, reclaiming it for the horrid jungle. We had to climb the steps to a small temple on the apex. It wasn't easy. 
By the time we finally reached the temple, we were covered in sweat. The walk took us several minutes. Waiting inside was an elderly man. He had wild eyes and was covered in more tattoos than clothing. He spoke some language I've never heard before and pointed to a balcony. He was in the act of performing an odd dance around a pit of fire, roasting a humanoid being. I was too disgusted to stay in the man's presence, so I willingly followed my comrades onto the balcony. From it, we could see the submarine in the pool far in the distance, more than 10 miles. I don't recall walking. I noticed that the scorpion seemed free, though the land just east of the pond was destroyed as if something large had passed through that way. The man started saying one word repeatedly, loud and clear, so we could understand. I never imagined that he was summoning something. Leviathan. 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 An indescribable horror wrapped itself around the pyramid, opening its jaws near the balcony. Those same octopus tentacles took hold of the stone structure as the wild man poured sand on the flaming pit. In some strange sense of ecstasy, he heaved the corpse before the creature. Its tongue rolled from the gaping abyss like an anaconda, taking the offering, though it was small compared to its girth. I don't think that it was satisfied because the tongue lashed out at Warden, pulling him to the balcony's edge. Before we could react, it pulled him in and swallowed him whole. While the man kept saying Leviathan, the abomination was eating the semen one at a time. It bit down on Nero and O'Connor and with a large hawkish beak and tossed them into the air before snatching them on their descent. It tried the same trick with Saluki but missed. The doomed man's body crashed to the temple's vine-covered stone surface and exploded. I, I can't describe it any other way. We didn't have weapons so our only chance was to escape. Yax was grabbed by one of the thing's tentacles. Its hooked suckers impaled him and dropped the dead body in the creature's expectant mouth. When we'd run from the temple, it turned its attention to the old man. The crazed man cried out gleefully as the creature's long tongue pulled him in. I wasn't going to stay around any longer to see what else it would do. It let out a roar of anger once we passed from its immediate reach, though I imagine it still could have caught us with one of its larger tentacles. For some reason, it didn't. Maybe it wasn't hungry anymore the bottom of the temple waited more humanoids, uncivilized monkeys wielding wooden spears. They attacked us, maiming several of the men. As the seamen fell to their wounds, which were by no means fatal, the humanoids descended on them and beat them with clubs made from stone. As the grass turned the color of blood, they began crying out, Leviathan, which made the unspeakable horror turn to them. It swallowed the sacrifices as well as a few of the humanoids, but it spit their bones back out, knocking a couple of the warriors unconscious. The creature, which I've taken to be Leviathan, had a large head which was mostly a mouth with eyes. It had a snake-like body and the lower portion of it was split into more than a dozen tentacles longer than the scorpion. Four of us survived the initial attack by the monkeys, but three were taken down by the uncivilized, brutal attacks before we reached the relative isolation of the forest. I couldn't see the creature, though in my nightmares, I think it chased us. When I reached Cox, I pulled him back to the scorpion. Samuels appeared alive, but decayed like a skeleton. A few vines had grabbed hold of him and were leeching the life from the man. 
I never looked back to see if we were pursued, though I heard the crashing sound of something large breaking through the trees. I was stunned to see the monster already sliding back into the pond and grabbing the scorpion. It had finished its meal and was returning the cold cylinder to the Arctic. When we reached the submarine, it was pulled back under the water violently and returned to the Arctic Sea. After we had control of the scorpion, Ritter turned us back to port. Three days had passed during the incident. Further recommendations. The crew of the Scorpion saw things they weren't authorized to witness, violating the code of clearance, forfeiting their lives. The Scorpion is to be decommissioned and destroyed. Pieces are not to be sold or reused in the construction of future submarines or any other vessel. The crew of the Scorpion will be separated and they will be terminated in whichever ways are most convenient. No U.S. vessel is to enter the region that the Scorpion reported the incident having occurred. Yeah. <laughs>
Disgraceful assortment of deplorable rubbish imaginable, mangled up in tangled up Many years later, King Balthazar gave a great feast for 1,000 of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. While Balthazar was drinking the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver cups that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. He wanted to drink from them with his nobles, his wives, and his concubines. Bring me the golden vessels from the temple of Jerusalem. But my king, is it wise to use the vessels? My king, these cups are considered sacred. Are they not my king? Perhaps in Jerusalem, 
But here they are spoiled for our gods. And they would have me use them as I see fit. Bring them! So they brought these gold cups taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. While they drank from them, they praised their idols made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. To Marduk, the god of our city, and to our idols of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone, partake of our pleasures and protect our city. Suddenly, they saw the fingers of a human hand writing on the plaster wall of the king's palace near the lampstand. The king himself saw the hand as it wrote, and his face turned pale with fright. His knees knocked together in fear, and his legs gave way beneath him. Whoever reads this and tells me what it means shall be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and be made third highest ruler in the kingdom. But when all the king's wise men had come in, none of them could read the writing or tell him what it meant. So the king grew even more alarmed and his face turned pale. His nobles too were shaken. But when the queen mother heard what was happening, she hurried to the banquet hall. She said to Balthazar, A Judean once told Nebuchadnezzar, your forefather, of his dreams. He succeeded when everyone else had failed. This man, Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, he could tell you what this writing means. Does he still live? He does. Bring him to me quickly, but do not harm him. We shall soon learn if this Hebrew can do as you say. So Daniel was brought in before the king. The king asked him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles brought from Judah by my predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar? I have heard that you have the spirit of the gods within you, that you are filled with insight, understanding, and wisdom. My wise men and enchanters have tried to read the words on the wall and tell me their meaning, but they cannot do it. I am told that you can give interpretations and solve difficult problems. If you can read these words and tell me their meaning, you will be clothed in purple robes of royal honor and you will have a gold chain placed around your neck. You will become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Daniel answered the king, Long ago, I told your forefather, Nebuchadnezzar, that I would speak to him only the truth, and that if he rather not hear it, he should ask me nothing. Perhaps it would be better if you asked me nothing. No. It is unseemly for a king to be baffled by a message in his own hall. No human hand has scribed it. No other tongue can interpret it. Tell me what it means. Be it for good or ill. O king, the Most High God, give your Father Nebuchadnezzar, greatness and glory. But when his heart became arrogant, he was deposed from his throne 
and stripped of his glory until he acknowledged that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. Even though you knew all this, you should have appealed to him. Instead, you set yourself up against the Lord of Heaven. You had the goblets of his temple brought to you and praised the gods of bronze and iron, wood and stone instead of him. These vessels were made for the service of the Most High, and you have used them to pour wine for your harlots. Would you humble the Almighty by desecrating his possessions? Would you bind him like a captive and beat him like a slave? Would you pluck out his eyes and have him beg for scraps of food beneath your table? This you would do if you could, and the Almighty knows it. This is his answer to you. The Lord God will strike you down like an enemy. For he has bidden his angel to unsheath his sword. These then are the words he has written. Manet. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the scales and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. This very night, your life will be demanded of you. And before the sun rises, your flesh will grow cold. Thus says the Lord, your line is ended, your rule is over. Your kingship is no more. Is there nothing to be done? No. In your arrogance, you have doomed not only yourself, but your house, your line, your inheritance, your city, and your kingdom. Choose now where you will spend your last few hours. But knowing your fate, who now will love thee? Who now will fear you? Will the least of your slaves comfort you? Or will they desert you? Seeking to avoid the fate which is yours. Then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was dressed in purple robes. A gold chain was hung around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Daniel chapter 5 
yeah, with all the stuff that I cover on the show and stuff, uh, it, it's it's one of those things where the small things you come back to. And uh, I, I definitely come back to your story as one of the small things that really just kind of rocket launched me into this stuff. And I just, I don't think I'll ever look back. I just, I'm fascinated by this stuff. And even like, as time goes on and the quote unquote disclosure could happen mm-hmm. and they find out what these things are, it still leaves so many questions unanswered that I think I'll always have questions, right. you know? And that's why I just find them. I love, I love the mystery of that aspect of things, putting puzzle pieces together. It's not necessarily the idea that, Oh my gosh, could UFOs be real? Of course they're real. Uh, how many people have seen them? Of course yep. they're real. You know uh, uh, what? Oh my gosh. Is Bigfoot real? Yeah. And there's too many people out there that have seen these things. Right. So that idea of, ooh, is it real? It doesn't phase me. And it's probably because I've talked to so many, I've probably talked to too many people. <laughs> and, and the reality is, too, is that regardless of what anybody else says, people know what they saw. Right. They know they saw something. If somebody sees a Bigfoot, they know what they saw. And they don't, everybody else can go to grass. Yeah. They know what they saw. And there's going to be naysayers. There's always people out there who are going to say, all right, oh, you know, the lights you saw in the sky, you know, they weren't UFOs. You know, that's memory of my own. And I know for a fact what I saw and what I didn't see. I know what was there and what wasn't there. I know there was two lights in the sky and there was no noise. And in 1974, we didn't have helicopters like that. <laughs> I, I can guarantee you that. Yeah. You know, and, that, and I think that's some, one of the things that, that that catches people by surprise is that everybody around them is so unwilling to believe them that they that that they feel even amongst their families that there's no belief that they don't trust them enough that their eyes. I know what I saw. Yeah. You know, you know what you saw. Mm-hmm. People who saw Bigfoot know what they saw. I know Wes Germer knows what he saw. Yeah. And. I don't care if the world believes. I don't, it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, and I look at the things that happen in our lives. And if Rome is where I'm supposed to be in life, all roads do lead to Rome. Hmm. Everything that, that happens in my life is going to lead me where I'm supposed to be. And that's that's how you have to view life. Yeah. That this I am where I need to be right now. Wherever that is, and where, where you're working towards, and what you're doing with the podcast is where you need to be. And all those roads that have happened in your past have all led you to this point mm-hmm. for a reason. And that's how we have to look at life. Yeah. Otherwise, life will drive you crazy. <laughs> you <laughs> tell me all the all the roads that we're on, yeah. all the little pathways, and everything else. You find that the more time goes on in life, the more you realize you're really not in control of life. Yeah. And you're really just along for a ride yeah. and you watch and see how things develop as the ride goes and you adjust and, and live your life accordingly. Right. Uh, it's just, I mean, you can plan all day long how you want life to go. Most people, life doesn't go the way they want it to go, you know? Exactly. And I mean, it's just the facts. I mean, if, if life went the way you wanted it to go, you would have been a signed musician yes. recording on a national label, traveling, singing, doing music, what yeah. you love doing. Exactly. Wasn't in your cards. Nope. And that's what I tell people all the time. Like, it's like, I, and that's another thing I'll, I'll bring up is that 
it that keeps me grounded as well mm-hmm. because I saw that process when I was 10 years old right. of somebody who has extreme talent, tried, and you did the best you could with what you had, and for whatever reason, it just didn't work out. Right. And you have to be okay with that. You do. And that's why I, I, people are like, people will say to me, oh, it's only a matter of time until so you're doing this full time and this, that, and the other. I would love that. But I'm not guaranteed that until it actually happens. Exactly. And I'm okay with that. You know, that's why I, even to this, today when we were downstairs eating and stuff, you and I were talking and I told you, I said, and until it happens, I'm a truck driver because I'm not guaranteed that it's going to happen. There are a lot of people out there in life that have so much talent. That, I yes. mean, they're so incredibly talented. It just doesn't work out for them. Yep. Uh, there's people like I, I say it all the time, like I've seen people who literally have the talent to be in the NBA. I've been around a lot of talent. I know what NBA talent looks like and I've seen it. Right. But for whatever reason, they didn't have the contacts right. They made the wrong decision at the wrong time mm-hmm. in life and it just didn't happen for them. doesn't mean they weren't good enough. Right. You know? And, exactly right. and it's just like, you have to just be willing to take life as it comes. Yes. Try. And as long as you can put your head down at night and know that you tried at life. Yep. I mean, what else could you do? You know, like the, the only other option is not trying out of fear of failure, but then you fail automatically because you didn't even try. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Like you and I are both truckers, you know? And, yes. and so... Uh, you always said, I don't want what I, I don't want my life for my kids and I become a trucker. <laughs> and I, I, I say this all the time to people that, you know, it's like when me and Lindsay were planning on getting married, I started working at UPS for the health insurance. Right. And UPS came to me and said, we want to train you to be one of the, the, the drivers. And I went to you and I said, dad, they want to train me to be a driver. And you said, don't do it. <laughs> You'll drop out of college and become a truck driver. <laughs> and what did I do anyways? I dropped out of college and became a truck driver. Only I'm making like $12 less an hour than what I could have been doing. <laughs> but it's okay because life has its ways of working out. And if I was doing the the UPS stuff at that early age, making the, that kind of money, right? who knows where I would have been mentally. I may never even been in a spot mentally to think about doing something else for alternative income. You know, it's, it's through the struggles that ideas are born. Right. And so yeah, that, right. I mean, I'm driving down in a truck by myself all day. I'm constantly thinking I'm bored, staring out a window, turning a wheel and pushing pedals, you know? Yeah. And, that's when the ideas are born because you're stressed about life. You realize that things aren't working the way you need it to work. You're thinking, how can I make it better? And that's when ideas are born. And then some people come along and help you with those ideas. And uh, it, it's just, you know, I, we're not even talking about UFOs, but it doesn't matter. No, we're not. It doesn't matter <laughs> because it's a conversation, life. right? Yes. And uh, it's just, and Jack's sitting here in the studio, just kind of on his phone, just Barely listening. awake. He's like, I've heard all this stuff before. <laughs> this is like table talk. This is Merkel table talk. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> I think that there just are a lot of le- lessons in life to be learned if we're willing to look and learn and learn from them. Most definitely. And uh, I, that's one of the biggest things that I want to teach my son is that life is, you have to be flexible with life. Mm-hmm. And as long as it's not, uh, this flexibility isn't going to change your moral stance on certain things. Yes. You need to be willing to roll with the punches. Yes. And so it, it that's, that's what I plan on teaching my kid. And uh, yeah, but thanks for coming on and my telling life. us your story. And It was chatting. definitely my pleasure. Absolutely. I had a good time. And it's always good to talk to you. Of course. Yeah. All right, let's record some other, other stuff now All for right. another show. <laughs> <laughs>
with the greasy black peel. You're about one. You got to your smile. You have all the bitter sweetness. All the season I can buy. It's the Grinch. You're a foul one. Friends you don't have. I wouldn't touch you with a 39 and a half of Paul. You're a monster. Your heart's an empty hole. So mad for Halloween, come around and we ain't knocking